0: Welcome, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior research fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. And UK in a Changing Europe is absolutely delighted to be putting on this event in partnership with British Future. British Future, as many of you I know already know, but for those of you that don't, is a non-partisan think tank organization that works particularly on issues of identity and integration. I think it's fair to say that the inspiration behind this event uh, was Sunda Katwala, Director of British Future. Um, Sunda previously worked as a journalist, General Secretary of the Fabian Society think tank, and previously a leader, writer, and internet editor at The Observer. Might have interesting things to say about the nature of the online election as well. So Sunda is one of our panelists tonight. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by a very distinguished lineup. Uh, alongside Sunda is Maria Sobolewska is a professor of political science at the University of Manchester, so thanks for coming down, and works on political integration and representation of ethnic minorities in Britain. And she also works on public perceptions perceptions of ethnicity, immigrants and integration, and the production and framing of British opinion of British Muslims. That's going to be a very interesting perspective there. Then, moving on to my left, we have Mike Graham. Mike is a British journalist, former editor of the Scottish Daily Mirror, and Mike now presents his mid-morning show on talk radio, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Mike doesn't tell us whether he was became independent after I'm a divisive a lot, referendum or not, but we might want to get on and talk about that. And finally, last but very much not least, Professor Tim Bale. Tim is Deputy Director at UK and a Changing Europe, but also Professor of Politics at Queen Mary mm-hmm. University of London, focuses mainly on political parties, particular expertise, uh, I think on the Conservative Party, and on the politics of immigration. Uh, So he's published books on Conservatives and Labour and just knows everything there is to do about British politics. So we're talking about the angriest election. I'm just gonna lay down an immediate ground rule here, which was you might be talking about an angry election, but this is not going to be an angry evening. So uh, we're gonna invite you to ask questions. In the floor after we've had a bit of chat among the panelists um, but please treat the panel with due respect please treat the subject with due respect because we're all going to have drinks together afterwards so we have got no security to call the police or anything so this is going to be a very non-angry thing that said if you want to tweet please join in the conversation the hashtag is angriest election but I'm going to start off by asking our panelists Is it? Uh, So Sundar, when you came to us with the idea of this event, you thought this was going to be an angry election. It it might, But is it an angry election? Hopefully not, and uh, not not
1: so much yet. I think it's been an angry year in British politics. I think that's been building up the uh, not leaving on March the 29th, holding the European elections. The European elections, I think there was some frustration, polarization and anger kicking around then. I think, I think that continued to build up. I think parliament was something of a pressure cooker then when it was debating October the 31st and whether to have an election or not. So I think I think the peak of anger uh, in politics this year came, came a few weeks before the election was called and in the frustrations. And since the election was called, um, an attempt so far in the early days of candidate selection and deselection, sometimes, and, and manifestos and, and registration, an attempt at good behaviour. You had the Prime Minister say, you know, Jeremy called Mr. Corbyn, Mr. Corbyn, and, uh, and so on in, in, in the debate. And so that, that wasn't a very. Angry debate. I think. I think there is a danger that, that it that it might be angry. And what we're trying to do tonight and in the election, I think, is democracy is really important. But um, you know, there are there are boundaries to that. In terms of what you know, where does 2019 have to get to to be to be the angriest election ever? I think there's always been anger and division in British politics. It hasn't. We haven't tended to have very angry elections. The, when it's got angriest, is often when we've had lots of elections very quickly. As you nineteen seventy four, there's an election in the middle of a miners' strike, there's another election six months later. Probably the angriest of all, you've probably got to go back um, over a century. You go to nineteen ten when the Lords is chucking out a budget that it's not meant to and might get abolished and peers versus the people and is Ireland going to be independent. You see quite a lot of features actually of what's going on. So democracy is a good thing, but we've had three general elections, a referendum, two referendums if you're Scottish, um, lots of other events in, in five or six years. So that we have these Tightened moments very, very often. They're quite frustrating. Elections do polarise. And people, I think, have got sort of less interested in persuasion, more interested in just talking to people who are going to vote for them. So that's where I think there are some dangers of, of not disagreeing well and having the argument well in our politics. But, but, but at the moment, hopefully it can be contained into, into you know, democracy as a, as a value where we can respect disagreement as well.
0: So, Maria, from your perspective, I mean, we're seeing actually you know quite a lot of uh, minority ethnic candidates and lots of people frightened that women would be turned mm. off standing. We saw a lot of women actually in anticipation, potentially, of quite a nasty political atmosphere deciding that they would quit politics prematurely, mm. uh, those figures about women coming out. So, from your perception, how, how do you think this is uh, shaping up and where do you think
2: it might go? So, I do think that we are currently in a period of angry politics. So we do see a lot of anger in politics, everyday politics, and not necessarily during elections. And in fact, I think it has very little to do with elections, and yet we do see that a lot of anger is particularly aimed at ethnic minority uh, women and other women in parliament. And we have been doing studies with uh, colleagues uh, from other universities in Britain, where we sent uh, surveys to all the political candidates standing for elections in general elections in the last uh, three elections. And what we saw is that every time we asked about harassment, it is the women and ethnic minorities that do report so much more harassment than white male candidates. And then you have to ask yourself, though, is this an artefact of the fact that we started asking? Because really, when you think about harassment, we have only just started asking about it. And so perhaps, in fact, always women faced more harassment. And I would absolutely bet a top dollar that ethnic minorities always have faced more harassment than white males. And so when we think about this angriest and this notion of more and it's all getting worse, I actually think we are becoming much more sensitive about these issues and we are therefore asking about these issues a lot more. We are trying to penalize them, we are trying to name and shame in a way that we haven't before. And so we have discovered this extremely ugly reality, this horrible anger often aimed at people who are underrepresented and more vulnerable in politics. And that is a horrifying picture, but actually the fact that we've discovered this, I think is a great advance already, because 30 years ago we were not discussing issues like harassment of MPs and harassment of minorities. So I think that is progress. Um, I also think that we have to think about with the kind of scientist hat on. I always say to people who say, oh, it's getting more, abuse and more emails threatening and things like that. And I'm just saying, well, actually, isn't it also? Because we have more email and we have more social media accounts. And so people who maybe weren't quite angry enough in the past to take out pen and paper and purchase a second class stamp and actually go and post abuse, now can do it without thinking twice about it, within seconds. And so, of course, we could also be looking at the same small number of angry individuals, but they are amplified. The voices are amplified well beyond uh, what used to be in the past. And do you think it's at all a function of the
0: fact that we actually have much more diversity in candidates standing? Because you know, not that long ago, elections in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, it's pretty much a white male monopoly on being a parliamentary candidate.
2: Absolutely, and I think a lot in, in a lot of people that might introduce the sense of uh, they are in danger all of a sudden. They no longer have a monopoly on politics and it does maybe make them angry. But we do also know from public opinion surveys that these people are decreasing in number. So, also, wor- we worried about them uh, a lot less when there were more of them. Now that we have fewer of them, we worry about them a lot more.
0: So, Mike, you're at the sort of front line. Uh, those of us, you know, studying, doing surveys, whatever, you just take calls yeah. from people. Well, I no, don't just um, take
3: calls. It's not the only thing I do.
0: You take calls from people, you know, do you think they are, sometimes are angry?
3: Well, they were a lot more angry, actually, before the election was called, funnily enough. And I thought the election being called let out some of the kind of steam mm-hmm. from the debate because a lot of the anger was born out of frustration over the course of the last three years because people were looking at their political processes and seeing them really for the first time, I think, you know, not really understanding much about mm-hmm. parliament before the fact that we've kind of, we've shown them the MPs more as a media. You know, we see more and more MPs on television. We have the tent of common sense, as we call it down, in Westminster Green, and people come in and sit there, and people can see how they react, they can see how they interact with us. They interact sometimes with callers as well. And I think that they see the election as a kind of possible way out of this terrible quagmire that we've all found ourselves in. Of course, if we don't find a way out because of the election, and it's a hung parliament again and nothing actually moves on, then I think they will be angry again. But I think at the moment they're a lot less angry in a way than they were. I had a caller the other day who said to me that, you know, I was very angry. Um, now I'm just disappointed with what's going on. So I said, well, I suppose that's an improvement in some ways, you know. I mean, what are you going to get to after disappointment? But I mean, the thing I'd like to say about the, the harassment as well, I think it's probably natural to expect women and ethnic minorities getting more harassment from these morons who send a- abuse on, either on emails or on Twitter, because those are the kind of people that they would target, you know? Um, But I I think you're absolutely right to say that in the old days, we used to call them the Green Ink Brigade when I worked in Fleet Street, you'd get the odd letter from some nutter uh, who would want to kill you or kill the minister or kill somebody, but they would have to actually make quite a big effort to to, to write that down and send it. Whereas now, it's literally the touch of a bar. I mean, I I get death threats all the time, and people do. But also, I was quite interested to see a piece in The Times the other day, which apparently there are more female candidates standing in this election than in any other election beforehand so it's it's good to see that it's not true to say that they're being sort of you know frightened off
4: mm. and tim i mean your study of political parties yeah, yeah. i mean I, I actually wanted to to make the point that uh, although you know we do live in very angry times um, actually elections in particular have been quite angry affairs uh, in the past and i wanted to just you know for the the, the sake of argument give you three examples um, the first one comes from the 1945 election, um, when Winston Churchill, uh, in a party political broadcast uh, on the radio, uh, claimed that Labour would, um, as a result of implementing, you know, what was a very radical programme, um, have to expect all sorts of, you know, violent expressions of, of protest were it to win the election. And he said, and just to read it uh as a result they would have to fall back on some form of gestapo now if you think <laughs> of a prime minister accusing uh the opposition uh just after the war had ended of uh needing some form of uh, security such as the nazis who had just been defeated uh, had used that's a pretty intemperate thing to say and if we fast forward to 1964, many of you may remember that that was a very you know, racially charged campaign in, in some areas, and in particular in uh, the Smethwick constituency in the West Midlands, uh, we had uh, one conservative uh, candidate, uh, albeit not officially, uh, running under the slogan, if you want an N-word for a neighbour, vote Labour. And it didn't only end there, because when the Labour candidate was defeated by that Conservative candidate, uh, he uh, left the, uh, the counting hall uh, to chance from uh, the uh, backers of the Conservative Party to, you know, uh, go and take your N-words with you. Okay, so, you know, that's a pretty charged campaign. And after he won that, Um, Harold Wilson, the victor of the election, said he would be treated henceforth as a parliamentary leper. And then the third example comes from 1983. A couple of days before the election in 1983, Neil Kinnock, who became the leader of the opposition but wasn't the leader of the opposition uh, at that point, um, made the point that before the Falklands War, in his words, Mrs Thatcher was the most loathed Prime Minister in modern history, at which point someone in the audience shouted that Mrs. Thatcher had shown guts, and Mr. Kinnock replied, it's a pity that others had to leave theirs on the ground at Goose Green in the Falklands to prove it. uh, Which caused a huge storm, Uh, instant condemnation from the then Defense Secretary Michael Heseltine, who called him, and this was obviously before they got together in the kind of Remain Alliance, (laughs) the self-appointed king of gutter politics. So uh, I guess what I want to stress is that it's very easy for us to see, you know, everything that goes on nowadays as as unprecedented and somehow more poisonous than it used to be. But elections have always been pretty, you know, to use a euphemism, rough and tumble affairs. So we shouldn't be entirely surprised if this one, um, you know, like those is as well.
0: So I'm quite interested in whether all this sort of rough and tumbleism, anger, I mean, is this... Is it just basically the inevitable passion you get in elections, where people care about things? So, you know, we had—I can't remember the Willie Whitelaw quote. You all remember that about going around the country stirring up apathy. apathy yes. Um, yeah, we're sort of slightly worried people don't bother to turn out, aren't engaging, and things like that. So, is there a sort of line where we can go, where we can have the right sort of anger or interest mm. um, that people engage? Because, like, well, the worst. Possible thing is people just think this is just so dull and pointless. Sundar? I
1: think, yeah, I think to some extent there's a thermostatic kind of conversation. They're too much the same or why are they all arguing? And that that sense of division, polarisation, I think there are cycles... Of that, I think what's more, what's more dangerous about that is when you're having these major intense heightened moments, not on a four year cycle where you win, you lose, you calm down, you come back, but you're doing it every year. That's normally a product of the fact that it's quite blocked and broken and maybe that the stakes are high and you're having referendums about your place in the European Union and the future of the EU in Scotland and the general elections are about that. So it's heightened all the time and you've got the intensification of the internet as well, which means the news cycle has sped up. That, that's where there that's were dangers. I don't think political division is dangerous because people can choose to vote for mm-hmm. division or they can choose to vote for the centre. I think the things that we should really worry about is, are our norms about violence? That's really fundamental. Mm-hmm. Are our norms about violence in trouble because people can't see the difference between anger and shouting? Anger is a really legitimate emotion. I'm never voting for you again. Chuck them out. Or mm-hmm. I'm angry about austerity or climate change or angry mm-hmm. about immigration. That, that's legitimate as long as you're not going so far on violence. And then our, our sort of... Prejudice norms as well like have we kept in check and as Maria says we've got higher standards there I think on violence we should worry because there is this sense that if everyone's being that angry on the internet Then you should get angry as well and that and that some people are then there have been candidates just in the last few weeks as well Seeing their premises vandalized. I think women are getting threats much more than they are very personal threats and they're having to change their skills and we saw an assassination in 2016 and we saw an assassination why do you see an assassination during an election campaign or a referendum there's probably always a group that might follow up the email and the death threat by doing something But these high to moments when the whole future of the country is going to be decided you know on Thursday week you know have a risk there if the candidates themselves aren't always sending these signals to say these are big disagreements with my opponents but not my enemies not traitors so i think i think that's that argument of when is the rhetoric when is the rhetoric of violence going to actually send a pro-violence signal and when is it just the rough and tumble of politics that we've always had? But can
2: I actually yeah. sorry, yeah. interject here a yeah. little bit? Because I actually think that uh, when we look at uh, how we feel about electoral politics in particular, is changing in a way that we are becoming more fragmented and therefore actually less tribal about elections. So uh, looking back at those elections that Tim was talking about, we definitely had a very strong Labour tribe and a Conservative tribe. They really identified with those two parties and so if there was an election and there was a direct competition between these two parties, people were very angry. Nowadays, very few people, by comparison, have a political identity that's attached to the parties. People are switching at greater numbers than ever before. And so as a result, I actually think they are less angry because they are less tribal about elections and parties. And of course, we know they are a lot more angry about Brexit. And I guess the the success of this campaign uh, will be judged by to what extent Brexit was cushioned by other issues, by those other uh, choices. Because, of course, Brexit is not yeah. actually on the ballot uh, papers in this election, right? The parties are, and they are throwing different issues at us, uh, economy being the prime example. And I, yeah, again, I'm not a betting woman normally, but I want to bet again that economy will trump Brexit in this election. So, Mike, that's very interesting. So you Do you get the sense that people are
0: seeing this? We've had this argument, haven't we, about Sky using the Brexit election as their thing and Labour complaining that that's playing into the Conservative way of pitching this and very interesting how far through the very long Labour manifesto you had to go to get to the Brexit section. Do you get the sense that people are identifying more with their Leave Remain identities, or with their sort of party identities? I think that's identities. The case. yeah, I
3: think it's definitely, the party identity kind of disappeared. It's not that long ago, um, when Tony Blair and David Cameron used to stand against each other in the, in, in the House of Commons, and people complained that you couldn't put a sort of cigarette paper mm. between them, and you really didn't have n- mm. any change between voting for the Tories and voting mm. for Labour. That's all changed completely. David Cameron, of course, managed to make a complete hash of everything uh, by chucking this sort of time bomb into the air and going, let's have a referendum on Europe. And it's just completely destroyed everything. And, I mean, mm. you can't quite believe that you know he's there sitting in his little caravan somewhere down in the West Country writing you know part two of his memoirs when everybody now is angry about everything and I think it's not just about the election I think people are just generally more angry you know look at what's happening in Hong Kong look at Spain you know look at France look at the Arab Spring when when it happened you know people power suddenly became something people started to think actually we can do something and when you give the people the right to vote in a referendum and say it's your future you decide and then you don't do anything about it of course people are going to be angry and i think people actually quite enjoy being angry and i think that sometimes it's a good thing but at the moment unless we get anywhere with it it's 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 going to get worse
0: Tim, are we part of a worldwide trend to angrier <laughs> politics i mean yeah well, know,
4: it's all kicking look off at the every, riots in barcelona
0: yeah. and well uh,
4: i mean i i think you know that that's possible but i think we also have to look uh, and i'm not you know, sort of singling out, you know, talk radio or any particular station there. But I mean, there is a kind of in the media. I mean, there's a political economy there which actually rewards anger in some ways. Yes. Um, you know, we, as Mike said, you know, we, we all we all get angry sometimes, and some of us like getting angry. And there's a kind of dopamine or adrenaline rush mm. <laughs> that, that that can get quite addictive, I think. And, and there are kind of um you know channels um that that you know monetize the anger yeah. in some senses and you know we've had heard a lot of talk about the way that if you watch one youtube video you will then be recommended another yeah. youtube video which will recommend another youtube video yeah. video and they will get angrier and angrier and more and more extreme as you go on because they know that that is going to keep you going and keep you on the uh on the channel um you know whether the the media has a responsibility for that or we all have a responsibility for that and whether anything can be done about that i'm not
0: sure so do you think in terms of party memberships it was quite interesting that you know we had this letter i've got the letter that um, various well-known authors and arts people wrote to the guardian saying we can't vote labor because well. it's an anti-semitic party We've had this debate about whether the Conservatives are really going to look at Islamophobia or just prejudice in general, um, whatever. I mean, is that the sort of odd that this is such a big issue within the party memberships?
4: Well, Tim. I think you know it, it goes to something that um, uh, has already been said in, in a way. Um, I think voters in general are much less tribal, but that means that the parties in some senses look even odder because their members are so incredibly tribal and possibly you know as a result of the kind of shrinkage of political parties um, you know over decades. Uh, they're now left with, if you like, the angriest people <laughs> around on both sides, actually, that has to be said. And, and if you look, um, you know, as our research on, on party members shows, you know, they, they are two tribes. They think so completely differently across, you know, the range of issues, whether they be economic, whether they be social. Uh, it's no surprise to me that they face off against each other in, in, in all sorts of ways. And, of course, they will do that on social media in particular.
0: Maria, do you perspective on party memberships?
2: Um, So I do think that um, one has to really think about how many there are. And I don't know the raw numbers, right? But when we think about the population, it is so incredibly silly almost to extrapolate the anger of what, less than a million put together? Yeah, I Yeah, of, of people uh, and, uh, you know, take that as the picture of the entire angry election, the entire country. There's just too few of them. But we do give the party members a huge
0: role now by the yes. dint of the way that we now select party leaders.
4: Well, that's true. And, and and also, although, you know, I'm bringing it back to social media again, and it, it comes to a point that I think sooner than me, you know, but before, you know, these party members would have been saying these things in drafty... Church halls on a Thursday evening, and no one would have known any better. But now, as Mike said, you know they're, they're out there, you know, posting on Twitter, posting on Facebook, um, and and really kind of <laughs> ramping up the atmosphere in a way that, as as Maria says, is really quite unreflective of a lot of voters. Actually, the majority of voters just don't feel that strongly about stuff. The, so. the issues you mentioned about anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim prejudice, mm-hmm. racism these are really important
1: issues, and they're the, they're the things you should get angry about if you're going to let the race norms. Yeah. Down if you know the party that passed the race discrimination laws in this country is under investigation by the EHRC or if a party that's investigating it. But there's a problem with the way we do this as politics. As Maria said, there's a, there's a story of progress here. We're holding people to account that you would have absolutely got away with that in 2001 and it's all very transparent. But because it's really bad, to be involved with racism, then that's a really important charge. And so everyone's saying, we care about that, but they care about it by shouting, you're the racist. No, you're the racist. And if you're asked about your own record, then you say, what about them? So you have this sort of what about tree about racism and then there's a real difference between what say civic society actors would want on this, uh, NGOs like ourselves or faith actors and so on, which is that you want the anti-racism norms to be adopted by everybody. Your aim as a political actor is to say, you must never touch them because how dreadful they are and so we're okay and vice versa. And what what you actually want is you want those norms to be owned by every party. So you're actually part of the problem on this, even though you're calling something out. It's right to call out a party that's failing. If you only do that to the other side, political advantage, you're part of the problem because what, what you do well is when you please your own tribe. We're seeing lots of candidates being dropped. There's not very good vetting going on. We're seeing people be on the ballot paper yeah. or there. But it's really important that parties do that. You know that, that they, they chuck out people yeah. who are violating the norm they're calling on yeah. the other side. But, but people find it incredibly hard. Partisanship is so powerful. Mm. So you're like, oh, wouldn't context, my friend. you know, He only meant that. Sorry. Mm. But that's absolutely terrible. And then people pretend to be outraged about things they're absolutely delighted about. Like, you know, if somebody says something very clumsy and stupid, you're not, you're not absolutely outraged that it's the end of democracy. You're actually thinking, you know, let's all tweet this around to our tribe. So I think, I think, I think we should ask people to pay more attention to keeping their own tribe in norm, not just scoring points. Yeah, yeah. I was,
3: sorry, I was gonna say yeah. keeping a perspective yeah. on it all because you're right. I mean, everything is outrageous now. Everybody's outraged all the time, constantly outraged. It's like well what you're outraged about today, and they always find something, whether it's that Morrison's thing that's been going around on Twitter, where some guy was chucked out of a Morrison's, either because he was leafleting for the Brexit party or because he was a candidate for the Brexit party. You can't really find out the truth about all these things before they've gone halfway around the world. And everybody's going, immediately sack this man from Morrison's, you know, boycott Morrison's. And then it turns out Anna Soubry's got a husband or a partner who might be a director of Morrison's. And it's all rubbish, right? But people are walking around going, this is outrageous. This must be changed. This must never happen. I'm not buying my Christmas crackers for Morrison's you go well really you know mm. haven't you got something better to do you know go and clean the dishes or something like that you know and people just are so out of control now that they're calling for people to be sacked mm. all the time they're calling for people to be no platformed all the time mm. you can't have that view because you're wrong I mean I don't know when it happened mm. but I, I remember a time when you could have a difference of opinion with someone and you could do it in, in a good in a good way you could have a shouting match mm. even um, even in part I think actually televising mm. in Parliament hasn't helped because you know, people can see every single minute of every single day what these people do. And quite often they're not doing very much. You know, let's go to the very important uh, you know, amendment mm. motion which is being discussed about our future in Europe. There's about seven people there. And everyone's going, well, what the hell are these people doing? Why are we paying them all this money? I'm outraged, let's sack them all. You know, and it's a sort of constant refrain. And I don't know how you stop people from being this easily wound up.
0: So it's very interesting you just mentioned Parliament there, Mike, because one of the things that has sort of led people to think this is likely to be very angry was, you know, first of all, Theresa May's bizarre speech in Downing Street where she sort of blamed parliamentarians for getting in the way of Brexit, and then that slightly disastrous evening when Boris Johnson might have been jet-lagged or not, but uh, had his run-in with Paula Sheriff over Joe Cox and described it all as humbug, and that allegedly led to some of the women deciding this wasn't a place they wanted to be anymore. So has Parliament's, you know, grandstanding, you know, we've had John Burko's slightly erratic and odd behaviour. From the chair. You know, I think they've, definitely fed, to they've the audience, they've fed think?
3: outrage. There's no, there's no point in denying it because, I mean, you're people like Jess Phillips, who said that she was going to yes. follow Boris Johnson around with a bell and just keep ringing it every time he spoke mm. to try and stop him from saying anything mm. interesting. You know, they've been making all these, they've been doing a lot of grandstanding. They have been making out that, uh, and also let's not forget, these are all people who stood on manifestos mm. which said that they would enact the referendum result when they got into power, and none of them have done it. And so the people, I think, have got quite a, a right to be angry with them for not doing their jobs. I mean, I had a row with Lisa Nandy, who tried to tell me that there was no such thing as a deal, that Theresa May had not brought a deal back, that they hadn't voted it down three times, uh, and that, in fact, it wasn't a deal of any kind, and the deal will be sometime in the future. And I'm going, are you actually for real? Do you realise you're actually talking to people who are listening to this, who are making no sense of it whatsoever? And the lawyers Mm. are to blame as well, by the way.
1: Mm. I think I think the politicians, you know, are saying two different Mm. things at once. Because in the end, elections polarise. What the politicians are saying is, of course, it's very divided. We must bring the country. Together. I've just got to win the next thing. I mean, if I could just win this election, we could all move on, or I just need to have one more referendum. And when we've won, we could all call it quits. And I think I think so politics is not really going to be part of the answer for a while, especially because we've had these elections so often. There's a sense that nobody's really listening again now. So we've just got to get our people out. If we had fifty percent and one person and they have 49%, then we would and then and let, Let's call it truth. And actually, what's really mobilising politics is losing. Mm-hmm. You know, the SNP won an absolute landslide by losing a referendum. That mm-hmm. Nigel Farage won the European elections because we didn't leave the European Union, um, and so on. And Jeremy Corbyn won because they lost an election. So winning doesn't seem to yeah. sort of, but, and, then, and then people really turn up. So politics is actually going to keep doing that. And the danger is when division becomes a strategy, you definitely see it in Trump's America. And that's what, you know, Boris Johnson Theresa made different points. Jeremy Corbyn in other ways are doing. They are saying it's us versus them. We're gonna have to look outside politics actually to say a truth, which is that our society is not as divided as those images of the house of commons. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of exhaustion mm. about and frustration about that. So how else do we step up and say, yeah, we argue about politics, but actually that isn't, that isn't That isn't a good picture of us. I think this is
2: a problem of design. When you think about the origins of our parliament, it has been designed uh, these two long rows of chairs across the line. It was uh, designed to be adversarial, and it was designed to have these two big blocks of. Disagreements, And when you think about such a big thing like Brexit that cuts across mm-hmm. those lines, the only way to solve that pragmatically is through reaching over and cooperating. But because the parliament's not designed, and our electoral system is not designed to facilitate that, I really sometimes think it's not going to happen at all. Yeah, but that's
3: because when they made parliament, it was full of grown-ups. Now it's for children right, who can't sure actually disappear. They, they can't actually disagree yeah. <laughs> with each other because, I mean, they tried this in Scotland when they built mm-hmm. the, uh, the Scottish parliament. I was working out there at the time. It was a complete colossal waste of money. and they built it in the round. And it's still full of people who call each other names. You know, it doesn't actually change because you change the structure. You've got to change the people, I think.
2: And the electoral system, I really think what we are looking at right now is a situation in which we have too many divisions to be contained in a two-party system. And I do wonder whether we will have uh, that kind of sense in the public, because, of course, we've had the referendum quite a while ago as well. So I think this argument that we have had the referendum on the change of the electoral system and people have spoken against it, you know, it's getting old now. And I wonder whether that is the potential result. So Tim, has the fact
0: that there's this sort of, you know, undertone? We've seen figures saying the cost of MP security has gone up really a long way since the murder of John C- Joe Cox. It's sort of gone through the roof. We've had police advice to candidates that they shouldn't go out on their own, shouldn't go out after dark, which actually confines the campaigning hours quite a lot if you insist on having an election in late November and December. Um, has, has this sort of anger changed the way people campaign and reduced voter contact and things like that, do you think?
4: Well, I think, you know, to give you the boring academic answer, we're gonna to have to do the research on that after this election to see if, if that... Post, yeah, yes. yeah, if that, if, if it has made a difference. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, think that, uh, you know, women have said, you know, they are more reluctant to go out this time than, than, than before. Um, For the reasons that we've said, but also you know because it's after dark, it's cold, uh, etc., etc. I just wanted to um, bring it back, however, and you're going to think I'm slightly obsessed about this. We've, we've, you know, we've, we've criticised politicians here, but I do think we we do need to you know look at the role of the media in this, and I don't want to blame the media, just as I don't want to blame the politicians. Um, But the media does to some extent, and and I think we saw this in the TV debate actually, have an interest in making things simple and making things binary and and conforming to the electoral system we have. And we had a debate, um, you know, a couple of nights ago between two leaders when actually there are more people than that involved in this election. Um, And, you know... Creating these binaries, creating this kind of adversarial um, situation between two options, I think he is almost in the kind of grammar of the media, and we do need to move away from that. I discussed this actually with Mike on the radio, yeah. and he made a very good point. Say, well, would it would it be much better if you had seven people in the room? And I, I think he's right. That would be chaotic, but maybe three, maybe four. You know, uh, to to just give people a sense that there are more options and, and not necessarily face one off against the other, which is almost bound to lead to that kind of obvious adversarial and angry conflict i I
0: mean it was the only time we've had a prime ministerial debate or a debate election debate with just the two leaders of the main parties but maybe this goes to some of i think the liberal democrats have a proposal for a debates commission that decides how debates are run which you can slightly see why they might think that given joe swinson wasn't there sunder do you think the sort of media i mean we've obviously seen some really quite inflammatory headlines, not just about MPs, but we saw traitors, we saw enemies of the people, about the Supreme Court, you know, with various sort of things actually trying to stoke anger against institutions you could argue were just doing their job as they saw it were legitimate parts of the system and not necessarily blocking Brexit, just asking some questions or saying, Parliament, you better have a vote on that. That was, after all, what happened in Miller 1. So, you know... Do you think the media is partly to blame for fueling this? The media is a big part of this. There's a very limited amount
1: you can do about the way mm. the newspapers do that, and actually the newspapers themselves are losing share of voice. Mm. And you know the, the newspapers are partisan actors mm. in the election campaign. Tim would no doubt say, there's nothing new there. You know the Daily Mirror would have been having a pop at Winston Churchill um, as well, and the Daily Mail was you know saying things about the Labour Party in 1924 as well. So that that's that's there. I think the public service broadcasters we could absolutely say your role here is not necessary the most clicks, the most tweets, the most... Thing. Your role here is actually to be, you know, why are we paying for you in the way we're paying for you and why are we regulating you? It's actually to, to, have, this, to have this voice. And I think, I think we could look there. I think two, two things the media definitely do is they, they, take, they take social media too seriously out of context. Social media is definitely the loudest people and the most participatory, and they should work a bit harder to get in the middle. But, um, I mean, if you think about what, what is a programme like Question Time meant to be? It's supposed to be a panel of the politicians meet the actual voters of, um, of um, Wakefield or Hammersmith or um, Plymouth or wherever mm. we are. And if you actually look at it, it's balanced in one way, that they've tottered up, they've got exactly the right number of Conservatives, mm. the actually, exactly the right number of Labour people, and Leavers and Remainers, but it's a very unbalanced form of balance mm. that they've gone for, because they've gone to the parties and they give us your people, and you know mm. this is all on social media, and you have a, to- a totally sort of arithmetically mm. perfect group of absolute mm. hyper who sound like the candidates and they've all got their things. And what would be really good is, it, and it would be, it would be harder work, but I'm mm. sure people want to do it. Mm. Let's have the actual Schoolgate mum and dad and the students of the thing. Not, not just the people who are there because they've got a stronger view as the panel. You'd have something really interesting there. So I think we're getting a really false picture actually of the general public by the kind of so-called balance approach. And I think it's something like the BBC. And That's how him. we pay for it, you, you know, that, that should be the general population. You know, a few people are very strongly mm. this, a few people are very strongly that. People who are definitely going to vote but haven't made their mind up more. I think you get a much better dialogue between mm-hmm. the parties because they're almost auditioning, aren't they, to create the tweetable clip?
0: So, you might, the that what that means, you have to ring up people at random to get the sort of apathetic or I'm just watching TV I'm not that interested <laughs> rather than actually get the people because you obviously get self-selecting people Well no, yeah, Well, I mean I think
3: you make a good point Question Time seems to me to have audiences that are generally filled with activists not, you know yeah. who mm. basically know how to get on mm. the show know how to get into the thing and we've seen in the past I think mm. several uh, occasions where some guy or some woman mm. has been on Question Time about seven times you know in all sorts of different parts of the country and you go well oh, you move around a lot you know <laughs> I mean it's I think the problem there, uh, yeah, yeah the problem yeah. is it's very difficult to be balanced you know we have rules now during the election perda period which are supposed to guarantee that we are balanced but you could never be balanced you know because we were doing something today we were listening to Jeremy Corbyn's speech and we had to time it so that we timed it exactly the same as we'd had Joe Swinson's speech on the day before which was on a different show you know we then got a Labour um, uh, shadow minister on can't even remember his name now, but his line was so bad, we had to let it go. But he'll go down in the book as a guy that actually spoke to us for five minutes, but nobody could hear what he was saying. So you go, well, <laughs> And it's not really very balanced for the Labour Party. You know, meanwhile, we have callers that ring in who tend to be more leave than remain, generally speaking. I try and encourage people to ring in and have a row with me and say they're right. But I can't now have a row with them because I'm not supposed to have an opinion. And it's very difficult to run a phone in show when you're supposed to be opinionated when you're not allowed to have an opinion. You know, It kind of makes a mockery of the whole thing. And I think people have grown up enough, generally speaking. To listen to an opinion i mean you'd have to be inordinately stupid to see enemies of the people on the front page of the Daily mail and go oh that's it they're enemies of the people mm. you know i mean you have to give people a bit of credit for being able to to, to sort of identify their own politics
0: mm. so tim one of the things that people are saying is that the government is uh, i think michael gove was accused of this of taking a bit out of the trump playbook of mm. trying to demonize the media and actually sort of make them notwithstanding the sort of requirements about balance, would make them appear to be a player in this. Do you think we're seeing a sort of bit, we've seen Jeremy Corbyn today say, you know, you are going to be told over the next three weeks that you can't have the sort of, you know, Nirvana promised the Labour manifesto, the vested interests are going to try and block you from this. We've had Boris Johnson saying... You know, notwithstanding the fact that he actually got his deal through on uh, second reading, mm. that Parliament has blocked Brexit and you've got to have this election to get rid of this use of zombie Parliament. Do you think we're seeing sort of well, politicians creating you know, almost straw enemies
4: here? Well, I, I certainly think politicians are much... Uh, more enthusiastic about criticising public service broadcasters than they ever used to be, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, they did occasionally make criticisms of the BBC, certainly behind the scenes, they would have phoned up or had their staffers phone up to criticise them. But, um, you know, Michael Gove is a very good example. where He basically accuses a journalist uh, who asks him, I think, about the Conservatives' housing policy of sort of running a kind of left-wing critique, um, which, you know, is from the Trump playbook, really. I think, you know, it was always in some ways legitimate for politicians to question newspapers because newspapers are always much more um, partisan. But, yeah, I think there is an attempt on both sides, really, to kind of delegitimize what most people would regard as reasonably fair and, and balanced journalism. I mean... I suppose the reaction from the journalists will be you know, angry, but I suppose they will also say, well, if we're being criticized by both sides, then at least it shows we're, we're doing our job, I guess. You know, that's the paradox.
3: Well, Jeremy Corbyn got a lot of praise today, didn't he? Because at one point when, um, when Laura Kunzberg got up to asking the question, she started to get booed all the people who because I think that's another bad thing which I thought the debate was terrible at, actually in terms of organizing the audience where you'd have this kind of whooping and general kind of cheerleading going on because your man has said something that you like I mean that's not an audience that's that's a kind of a, you know that's some kind of a pep rally a well exactly and and the same goes for um, I mean Jeremy Corbyn speaks about all the billionaire owners of, of media you know absolutely you know twisting everybody's minds but then says, all journalists will be heard. So there's a, again, sort of mixed messages going on here, and there's no doubt that, that they're both playing this kind of game that, you know, let's make the media the enemy, let's blame the media, because it's obviously the media's fault that all of these terrible things are happening. The bottom line is it's all their fault because they haven't done what they said they would do, which was to get us out of the European Union.
4: Mm, but I mean, le- I'm just gonna say, I mean, the levels of paranoia on both left and right, not just about media, but even polling organisations have to be seen to be believed. I mean, you know, there, there is a regular critique Um, of, for example, YouGov and its polls simply because it was founded by a conservative. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the idea that somehow that filters into the questions they ask and the way that they actually produce the answers is just absolutely ridiculous. But it is a genuinely held belief by some people on the left, and it's one that's trotted out very vehemently day after day after day.
0: Okay, We've had quite a lot of issues come up. Uh, We're going to go to you now. Now, the lighting is slightly odd. Uh, which means it's quite difficult to see people but I'm going to go and take sort of questions in sort of clusters and please, even if you're at the peripheries of the room, very keen to get you in. So we'll take them in sort of bunches of three and I think there's a roving mic lurking around. So let's go to this lady at the front first.
5: Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'd just like to pick up on the media question because I think it's a really interesting one. And I think another thing to look at is the way that the media has changed. As Tim reminded us of the vitriol Mm -hmm. that was in in elections from 50 years ago. 50 years ago, reporters would stand outside Downing Street and say, "Uh, Prime Minister, do you have anything Mm -hmm. to say to us? Mm -hmm. Now, the likes of Emily Maitlis, Mm -hmm. if you remember, she interviewed Theresa May after Grenfell and it was one of the toughest interviews that I've ever seen on television. Eddie Mayer interviewed Boris Johnson, Uh, with the famous quote about you're a a nasty piece of work. I mean, these days, interviewers dare to say things to very top politicians that they would not have done uh, 40 or 50 years ago. So on the one hand, you've got the media has become, I think, much more confrontational. But equally, there's another thing going on, which is that politicians are able to sidestep the media by making their own videos. So you've probably seen Boris Mm -hmm. on his bus just talking Mm -hmm. on some slightly wobbly video, Mm -hmm. but communicating direct to the voters uh, without any intervention, any media person uh, challenging him. And that is a, you know, that's also a significant development. Do you have a question? Oh, gosh. (laughs) No, that's okay, if you don't, that's (laughs) fine. No, you you said you were taking things in three, so that's just my observation. Take into account the changing nature of the media, basically.
0: Interesting. Let's let's go to the sort of back. There, gentleman, There and a lady at the far back.
5: Yeah.
6: Yeah. Me. Um, Maria said on harassment that
3: among those harassed in politics were ethnic minorities. What would she say constitutes an ethnic minority? Is it foreigners, people who have English as a second language, or is it some other group of people?
0: Okay, your harassment scale, Maria, and yes, lady, Is somebody at the back. Oh no!
2: Um, yeah. Hello. <laughs> um, it's more anecdotal, I guess. But when you were talking about um, tribalism in terms of uh, party identity and things, I was thinking, and whether this was a Brexit election, I do have people in my circles that, talk, that have voted Labour for a long time that are thinking about changing to Lib Dems ba- based on the fact that they're very heavily invested in remaining in the EU mm. and the fact that Lib Dems have been a bit clearer about that position. So I'm just wondering if any one of you could really kind of speak to that and how relevant that might be. Thank you. What
0: well, the fact that people are sort of willing to switch long held allegiance. Yeah,
2: and based on remain uh, politics mm-hmm. above anything else.
0: Okay, so let's have a comment first on this sort of view that actually, you know, we used to have incredibly deferential Prime Minister. It's so nice for, you know, gracious of you to let us come and put in some extraordinarily patsy questions, um, which we quite shocked when we sort of watched how deferential they were. But equally, the fact that, you know, if you listen to some of the leading programmes, the Today programme, will say we can never get Boris mm. Johnson to come on. We never get the sort of big, big names. I mean, should we actually have sort of different ground rules for for the media? It's uh, tricky, you think?
4: isn't it? I mean, I think they are involved in this kind of you know dance with each other, really. Um, you know, as the media's got more confrontational, you have politicians who are more media trained and therefore kind of more able to avoid (laughs) questions and therefore the media has to get even more confrontational to get anything out of them. Uh, And now, as you say, politicians aren't even kind of bothering to appear or sidestepping the media. Um, I mean, I'm not sure, um, you know, how we go on from here if our politicians, you know, won't appear. um, You know, the media is a very important way Mm. that, you know, politicians are held to account. Doesn't necessarily always happen in parliament uh, and, and i think you know it will be it will be very bad generally for democracy if if you know what has happened over the last year or so carries on but i mean mike's probably got mm, a yeah. view on on the deferentiality well, I mean, or otherwise yeah.
3: remember when um, sir bernard ingham as he is now mm. once punched a bbc uh, reporter in the stomach because he didn't fancy the idea that he was going to ask prime minister margaret thatcher a question at the time he <laughs> was that guy that ended up on strictly yeah. i think wasn't it um and I think the spin doctors are to blame for a lot of this as well. The Alistair Campbell period, when suddenly spin was a thing um, and, you know, the, the, the sexed up dossier and all of that. And suddenly, you know, there was a time when, you know, the press was kind of the tail that wagged the dog. Um, and now I think after Alistair Campbell, they docked the tail and they took the tail away. And they said well we don't need you anymore we will use a variety of means And I think you're right to say that politicians can go direct to the people but however they still have to, to campaign in the old-fashioned way because still despite the fact that everybody who's on Twitter thinks it's the most important thing that's ever been invented there's an awful lot of people who aren't on Twitter mm-hmm. there's loads of them uh, and, and a lot of older voters who have got no knowledge really of the internet or no knowledge of, of, of social media whatsoever um, but I think I think all of those points are absolutely right Pol- politicians have become much better at avoiding the press the press have become much more confrontational and I think the The trouble is the press have also become personalities of their own and that's never a good thing I mean obviously I'm one of them you know so um, I do a radio show but it's slightly different for me I think to somebody like Robert Peston uh, who's meant to be a straight-on straightforward kind of political reporter who's now doing a a TV show, which is a bit like a kind of variety show. You know, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do. And I'm not having a go at Robert Peston. You know, I think he's a great guy. But, you know, it's all about personality, that show. And it's all about the guests and how they interact with each other. And I don't leave that show learning anything. And without wishing to blow my own trumpet, I, people say to me when they listen to, to what I do, they end up with a few facts. I put questions mm. to politicians that other people don't put to them. Mm. I ask them to, to, to stand up and actually admit that this is not true mm. or, to, or to give me some evidence that it is true. You know, when you get people from the Lib Dems coming on saying, oh, there's a great deal of evidence now that you know, if we had another referendum, you know, uh, Remain would win it. And I go, well, where's the evidence? And they don't have any, but they say it anyway.
0: Sundar, you used to be internet editor of The, uh, uh, of the Observer. Duh. Uh, people have been quite worried about the way in which uh, which we fail to keep our electoral regulation up to date with some of these sorts of you know videos that you know can be targeted micro targeting of voters and things like that. Do you think this is sort of big sort of hidden problem that's likely to affect the outcome of the election? Or people just watch these and just say it's Boris playing with his dog or wandering around talking about fish and chips and? I think sandra I've- other rubbish or whatever. I think we've got we've got to get a grip on
1: it. I mean, all of these points. The question described the arc very, very well. Actually, mm. that we're evolving to different mm. to different points. So as a television got much less deferential, but you had to be on it. So in the sort of Brown Alden Paxman era, you didn't have a choice. You had to take that grilling. You can now opt out of it if it's harder. You can do this. So we much. so we can um, uh, we've got to adapt to it. I think I think it's really important, therefore, to put resources mm. into these kinds of transparency projects. What's going to be really mm. helpful? And of course, mm. parties have always had leaflets down in Cornwall that are different to the leaflets they've got sort of 200 miles away. But it's really, really helpful that everybody can see at least at the elite level and where you have to be held accountable what you're sending to different types of voters. So if you can surface all of that, you've at least got to defend what you've what what you've put out. So I think those kinds of projects that try and work out what's going on are are very important. In the end, this is going to come down to however much we try and sort of regulate it and set new rules, it's evolving. It's gonna come down really to the intelligence, the public and the voters as to the norms that we want. I think where we're at risk here is that that if parties work out that some of the codes that are good for scrutiny, Mm. yes, you turn up to select committee, even though it's tough, yes, you do. Mm. So are actually more harm than they're worth. You've got to create a norm where you want politicians to show that they'll do that because that's part of leadership too but I think I think getting transparency out I think I think we saw some of it in the referendum campaign we'll see something where you you're saying you're saying very above board things on the 10 o'clock news and you're sending out specific things on Facebook down on the coast that are quite different but then you say well I can't I don't know what you're talking I mean, about so really, really important we yeah. see what you're what you're sending to voters but isn't
0: a really interesting issue of both, both big parties are doing this in a sense, and both sort of see some benefit from it. Uh, who is going to propose the legislation that offers better regulation of that, the way, I'm not or whatever?
1: To be I think it's got to just you've got to be on the record, and that people can see what you've done. You know, I think I think it's been a positive thing that we have seen people ditching their candidates. It's a bit of a shame if you're ditching mm. a candidate and they'll still be on the mm. ballot paper because you can't actually defend what the candidate said. You've got to be able to defend that what you've put out on a. Facebook ad yeah. is is similar enough to your manifesto and your message that you that you that your party brand can be attached to it. It's up to the voters to punish, police parties with their votes ultimately.
2: But also, in the last parliament, yeah. we have seen quite a lot of activity trying to prevent these kind of fraudulent messages, and mm. uh, there was a, a parliamentary uh, select committee tackling that mm. issue and taking evidence mm. uh, and rushing out the report just before the parliament was uh, closed mm. down again. So, I do think the people need some security and certainty in their life and we were talking about uh quite a few institutions uh that people have Mm. stopped trusting right and so i think maybe we are maybe perhaps we are more angry because we have fewer things that we trust and we take as this kind of stable Mm. trustworthy element in our lives and so we feel more afloat uh, if we don't trust the experts if we don't trust the media if we don't trust the politicians You know, who do we trust? I mean, people need, people are kind of group animals. We need that security. We need that comfort of trusting somebody.
0: So that was one of the very interesting moments. I'm gonna admit I missed the debate on Tuesday because I was chairing something else. But it was one of the interesting clips that the clip that everybody chose to run on the news was the two leaders being asked whether anyone should trust them? Mm. And then the audience, mm. taking Mike's point, the audience laughing yeah. at them when Boris they Johnson, both, yeah, so. saying yes, yes, of course, yes. Trust, is, trust is very. Mm. Is, is this, do you get the sense of very low trust? Yeah, in I mean, politicians is that as you know we always don't trust them very much, do they? I mean, well, the Mori veracity indexes, Yeah, always have politicians. Yeah, professors always agents. come very high up. By the way, I just want to say that. Up, not as always, high up as
4: doctors. I think they're lower than that, journalists now. Politicians, <laughs> which is yeah. saying something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Maria's probably got better data uh, mm. on this than I have. But I mean, you know, we, we clearly have seen a decline in trust. But it's not just in the UK. Yeah. Oh, I mean, to be yeah. fair, I mean it, it's almost everywhere really. Um, you know, and quite what's driving it. I don't know, Maria, what do you think in terms of what's driving it?
2: I do think it's the uh, abundance of information, which is uh, mutually contradictory, and we do not have the capacity, the world is getting more and more complicated, and we lack capacity to really Mm. assess the evidence. And you say that professors are still trusted, Mm. but they are trusted less now than they used to be. And uh, I think this is part of this uh, attack on expertise as well, right? Mm. And in fact, you see more in uh, social media now, Mm. uh, people bringing Mm. up this uh, argument that you shouldn't trust authority just because it's there. Mm. Um, And yes, I guess you shouldn't, but if you don't have the capacity yourself to assess whether that authority is right or wrong, and that authority has some backing behind it, then maybe you should trust them just because you have to trust something. For example, I trust Mm. in medicine. I go to a hospital Mm. when I'm sick, even though I don't have the relevant medical knowledge to assess whether they are you know trustworthy or not but That's we yeah. do need some silver level of lining in,
1: in the reactions to the debate that i was hmm. quite surprised when i saw it. there was a poll that basically shows, you know it was kind of fairly split but actually people were also asked how did they both do just simply yeah. leaving it alone and it was quite interesting you know conservatives thought was too well Uh, Labour voters thought Corbyn did well Um, about 48% of Conservatives thought Corbyn did quite well, 33% of Labour voters thought Johnson did quite well so quite a lot of people thought they both did okay, 7 million people are watching Mm. quite a lot of people haven't been paying attention, a minute's worth Mm. of stuff, it wasn't a brilliant Mm. debate if you've Mm. been following it, none of the people who thought they were both awful was actually quite small but But somebody said you know, you wouldn't see that in America actually now and America has been through this polarisation cycle and kept it going, you wouldn't have a third of Democrats Mm. saying the Republican guy Mm. did okay so that's quite good and I think we should be doing more to amplify that norm, you know, most of the activism most of the
4: behaviour is good and some of it is terrible because this is where I think we are talking ourselves slightly overly into that. I mean I think there is a problem in the sense that you can of course do polling and Maria knows this uh, as well as I do, which shows you know, uh, a a very large and depressing number of people would be uncomfortable if their daughter or son married someone from a leave perspective, uh, if they're from a uh, remain perspective and vice versa, uh, and and I and I think doing that kind of uh, polling can um, you know suggest that we are incredibly divided and kind of at each other's throats all the time, et cetera. Whereas you know, and, and of course you can do these lovely little anecdotes in you know agonised articles about how you know this or that family fell out over Christmas, over Brexit, or or whatever. But the the you know the the truth is you know I, I don't know this is a Figure plucked out. 90 percent of people do not fall out that badly over brexit that they never speak to each other again or that they don't let their son marry someone you know who has a different political opinion so, it just doesn't so, happen so
0: let's take this uh, the last question we had over there about people struggling with this dilemma yeah. that you know actually on the sort of total package i prefer x but the most important thing to me is the brexit vote and the party that's better for me on Brexit. So if it was offered a general election and a referendum on the same day, I'd vote there and I'd vote there. But actually, I'm not being offered that way through at the moment. So I need to decide. Do you get the sense that people are wrestling with the sort of conflict of identities? I mean, we wrote something... Uh, yesterday, Alan Wager and Matt Bevington, about Conservative Remainers, who you might say are the sort of people facing that dilemma, or, or Labour leavers, those two people who are sort of struggling with that, possibly the most of, do I vote tactically for my Brexit preference or do I stick with my my old tribe, rather than my new tribe? Maria, so how do you So we, we
2: have seen, looking at the... Um, polling and how in more in-depth social surveys what we see is that generally in uh, general elections people vote on issues such as uh, economy in particular, but also to some extent uh, NHS, immigration in the past, although not so much now, whereas in the referendum people voted on completely different things, definitely much more on immigration uh, and uh, on their kind of uh, dislike of diversity and things and English uh, nationalism, so if they felt very strongly uh, that they are English nationalists, they uh, voted to, to leave. Um, but, of course, this was comparing 2015 and 16. But then when we looked at 2017, which was supposed to be the original Brexit election, actually most people reverted back. So yes, there was some switching, and we know it particularly benefited uh, the Conservative Party in some uh, areas, but we saw quite uh, you know, surprisingly li- little switching away from Labour. And in fact, most people, when we looked at the best predictor of vote in 2017, it was still issues such as an economy. So people went back to voting the old way. And so I think this is an open question for this election. Mm -hmm. How many people are so much more invested in Brexit than in the traditional voting they will switch. So, I, what, what I, impression are you picking up? from- Well, I get the opinion?
3: impression that there's a lot of nonsense talks about tactical voting because there's an awful lot less tactical voting that, that people can do. <coughs> if you happen to be in a place where you can make use of tactical voting, great. But most constituencies, that won't be the case. And I think it will actually revert much more uh, to Tories versus Labour. And I think the only really main argument for for much of the of the Brexit debate will be how Labour is affected by the people who voted to leave but who are staunch Labour voters, like up in the northeast of England, where we're we're seeing certainly anecdotally and there are people up there saying we're not voting Labour in this election there's no way the Brexit party might the Brexit party's kind of blown itself up though I mean Nigel Farage has proved once again that you know once he comes anywhere near a real election he kind of needs a dose of the smelling salts because he's kind of <laughs> doesn't quite know what to do about it but the bottom line for me um, is that you know just to go back if I may to the question of trust I mean the reason people don't trust politicians is because they prove themselves to be totally and utterly untrustworthy and that's why people don't trust them you know when the Lib Dems put out a poll that says they could win in the southwest but they forget to except in the small print, oh, actually we told everyone there was only us and the Tories left. You know, you go, well, really? Is that, are you that stupid? Did you think nobody would spot that? Did you really think you could get away with that? If you call Boris Johnson a man who has made a complete and utter mess of his personal life and he's a liar and he's a cheat and he's a charlatan, is there any surprise that people laugh when he says he thinks that trust is important? You know, I mean, it's a very toxic environment right now.
1: I think exactly. what, the, what the dilemma yeah. the question is talking about shows us that we, is that actually, as a political kind of conversation, we exaggerated this spring, how much Brexit is everything and there's gonna be no compromise because your Tory remainers, your Labour leaves, they're still quite cross pressured. So the European election was really angry because the stakes were so low. It was an absolutely sort of performative vote to sort of vote for your Brexit tribe. So we said that will be it forever now. You better turn yourself into the revokers or the no dealers and then you come back to an election and people are really caught between those two things. The general election is actually quite a good idea in terms of sorting it out, because there's mm. all this bottling up so. and so on. And the, but what we've actually had is we've got two completely different views. It's incredibly frustrating. It's stuck mm. because it's you want a referendum in ways you shouldn't have. So of course, mm. Parliament should do mm. its job. Or you know, you lost a referendum and so put it through, and then we can get on with it. And the, the election actually tests if if it is the public are very mm. frustrated with the politicians and they want it done. Mm. Presumably, we'll see a government that gets it done. And if they don't think that, because they're as divided as the politicians are then it will turn out that the divisions in Parliament reflect the divisions in the country we'll have to work out what to do about it so people have to jump off the fence don't they and decide which way which way they're going. but or I think not, we, we will not, have another election in two years time. It, but if we are deadlocked, why is yeah. politics always frustrating? Right. Democracy's brilliant, but it's really frustrating because all five of us get a vote, all 100 of us get a right. vote, and we vote for different things. So I don't get everything I want. You've got to learn by seeing that other people voted against you, and you were the 48, or you were the 50. You've got to learn, actually, that that's what democracy is about, and that's what we're slightly losing in this age right. of... And at least the fixed-term parliament's
3: working out really well, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, Well,
0: Labour's just committed to repealing it, so in it's manifesto, she said. Maybe the Conservatives will as well. Theresa made it in 2017. Maybe that's
2: one thing that goes to be... Now, there's a very specific question for oh, you, yes. Maria. Yes, the um, What is an ethnic yet. minority? So, uh, in this country, we generally uh, characterise an ethnic minority as a non-white person. And this is reflected in the census categories. Um that we so we have data and we collect data mm-hmm. on non-white minorities and actually uh, this has a lot of uh, translation into outcomes because we know that uh, children of white immigrants often don't face any inequalities and disadvantages and they kind of blend into the society and they don't have that discrimination mm. against them. Whereas uh, people who have been born here and their mothers and grandfathers mm. and et were born here. So they truly native Britons. Mm. They still face disadvantages if they have a different skin it colour. Ends up,
1: it ends up mm. getting more complicated. So people like yeah. me, I'm mixed race, so mm-hmm. I get to tick yeah. that box. Mm-hmm. I've got an Indian dad and an Irish mum. And then people like my kids, you know, they've got an Indian grandparent. They sort of oh, won't know yeah. what box oh. to tick. So in the end, in the end, the boundaries yeah. get blurred. But in yeah. terms of who's getting the most abuse, it's people who identify as yeah. black and Asian and yeah. mixed so race and are visibly, I the, are visibly seen to be. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: OK, let's go to some more questions. So where have we got? So there's somebody back just in front of the cameras and then down here. The side, right, right, right
4: at the side.
0: Oh, and then at the side, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so, yep. did we go to the... Yes, have you got a microphone? Yeah.
6: I think Sundar was, was uh, suggesting right from the start that um, perhaps he was surprised that the idea a while back that this would be the angriest election isn't actually playing out at all. Mm. And I wonder if the, the, the panel have a comment on this, because it seems to me that there was a great binary divide around the Brexit issue, which has now been completely muddied in an election which covers all sorts of fronts. And that in itself dissipates the anger. And if you've got a straight up and down, like there was in 92, for instance, when there was this great campaign don't, uh, don't allow Kinnock to become prime minister and ruin Britain and you get the highest turnout uh, ever mm-hmm. on with some success with that being wound up. That was a really binary issue in 92. We had a binary issue up until the election got called over Brexit, but now there's 101 different things playing in at different levels, which is why even very clever people like Tim have no idea what's gonna happen <laughs> on the 12th of December. and, and I'd just like a comment on, and it's not actually the angry election, because there are so many different things at play.
0: Okay, let's go down down here, and then to the gentleman there. Yep, have got a microphone there, and then to the gentleman there.
6: Thank you. I just wanted to suggest that uh, when we talk about angry election or angry mainstream mm-hmm. politics at the moment, uh, it's worth putting into the equation the fact that as I was growing up in the 70s over here, mm. uh, black voices were mainly heard through riots. And for a black kid uh, walking through, say, subways, going under the roads, you know, I didn't go under subways because, mm. you know, the risk of, you know, white thugs waiting there to, to give me a beating. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of anger, but that wasn't in the mainstream of politics then. Mm. And I'm wondering if maybe some of that is in the mainstream now in a way that it wasn't then. So it's not so much that there is more anger now, but more that it's more incorporated into the mainstream as opposed to before when perhaps it was more on the fringe.
0: More evenly spread. That's an interesting point. And let's go there. Yeah. Okay.
4: Uh, Is the old notion of Burkean representative democracy now dead given the 2016 referendum and its opposition to how representative democracy works. Plus, if you take into account the um, parliament of 2017 to 2019, when there was no parliamentary authority and social media exacerbating the idea is that every view counts.
0: That's very interesting. So do we think that, I mean, Mike said that the sort of calling the election actually had taken the temperature down a bit uh, compared to that. Do we think that, you know, actually, maybe the election's been a useful reminder that there are other issues that matter?
4: Yeah. Well, that's Tim. true. I mean, I think, I think elections can play that kind of safety valve role, as as uh, Sandra and Mike have been suggesting. Um, I think one of the interesting things, you know, there's a kind of um, common wisdom developed that somehow if the election isn't about Brexit, then, you know, that's really good for the Labour Party uh, and really bad for the Conservative Party. And I think if the Conservative Party uh, wins the election, you know, people are gonna be saying, well, it's because Boris Johnson convinced people it was all about getting Brexit done. But actually, the Conservatives could win this election almost irrespective of Brexit, because they are way, way ahead of the Labour Party on economic competence. They are way, way ahead of the Labour Party on, you know, leadership evaluations. They're they're ahead on all sorts of things that normally win um, parties' elections. So, I mean, I, I think you're right to say, you know, and Theresa May found this to her cost, that of course you can't make an election about what you want it to be about, you know, whatever that single issue is. Um, but I, I think people are wrong, and I'm not saying you suggested this, when they suggest that somehow if that happens, then automatically you know, that's, that's a real disadvantage for the Conservatives. I'm not so sure it is. I think talking
3: about this election as a binary election is, 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 is interesting because I think if you had the Labour Party actually with a Remain position, about the European Union, then it would be much more binary. The fact that nobody really knows precisely what they want to do, because they won't really say, even though they keep telling us it's very clear. You know, I have no idea really what their policy is. Nobody uh, can get Jeremy Corbyn to to admit what his own individual choice is. And I think that therefore, it's no longer just about leaving or remaining. So in a way, the the election can't be about Brexit because you haven't really got two choices. You've got one choice uh, and then a load of others. And you kind of go, well, I don't know what to do now. and I think it's interesting uh, the point that was made about parliamentary democracy as well, because I think that really is in a bad way. And I think that somehow the only way of choosing um, sort of the, the, the future that we want to choose is to get a parliament which has got a government that can actually run the country with a majority. And if it doesn't have a majority, then we're in stuck all over again.
0: It's so very interesting. We've been talking a bit about fragmentation, haven't we, about how opinions are fragmented. And if we had a parliament that had a strong majority, that actually would not probably reflect where opinion is i mean one of the things about parliament blocking brexit or being so finding brexit so difficult was actually that probably was the best reflection of the result of the referendum that actually we're not quite sure what to make of a 52 48% do you so i think
1: I think I think it's a very good question as to why why does it feels it calmed down mm. and as as when you call the election mm. the politicians you know they have a very fine nose then to where the public mm. are because it's you know it's mm. going to be existential mm. to the politicians mm. at that point mm. and I think there was a public mood so we could get sort of more and more exercised mm. into mm. this clash or is there a frustration a polarization mm. and we want to be, mm. we want to do it a bit differently so the politicians feel that a slightly more elevated mm. style of behavior is where is mm. where the public are so they've I think I think they've I think they respond to that. They might not last till the end of the campaign. But at those moments when it really did feel it was overheating in Parliament, especially mm-hmm. when Prime Ministers were attacking mm-hmm. Parliament, you very much felt there was a mood not just in the Pomp, but that people wanted to try and put a lid back on while having the argument. And the election in the end is a is a mm-hmm. way is a way to do that. So I think the election does help you to help you to try and work out work out where you are. Where you're going to, where you're going to end up on this? I mean, what the King's College uh, research on polarization mm. shows is we're exaggerating mm. it. The the, the Brexit mm. issue is very real and very mm. important. And then there isn't just division between those two tribes on everything else. They yeah. all agree about the health service, and people agree on this point, for example, mm. about political civility. And their Britain looks a bit different from America. They've been working harder on their polarization for 20 years mm. now, and they've really sorted it out. And so you, you know, if you disagree with somebody on that, you disagree with them something else. And actually, I think I think to some extent. France is more is more mm-hmm. polarised now. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got Macron and the National Front, and you've got the Yellow Jackets mm-hmm. you know, setting cars mm-hmm. on fire. So, I mean, we're having a sort of very angry election on social media. People are very angry about the rebranding mm-hmm. of a Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if we keep it at that level, um, that's that's well. a wrong. It's a wrong thing to do. But but you know, it's mm-hmm. a sort of it's not it's quite right. it's not quite riots riots on the Champs Elysees. Boris
0: Johnson puts through his sort of Brexit, which uh, based on his political declaration is what, you know, before the referendum, we might have called a very hard sort of Brexit, a very distant relationship with the EU. Some of the work I think that colleagues at University College London did with citizens Assemblies suggested that actually we sat down people in a room and gave them that, you know, and said you've got a to divide, they'd end up with a sort of, you know, more of a sort of common market 2.0, softy-dofty Brexit, uh, whatever. You know, if Boris Johnson put that through with a strong majority, which he could get with 40% of the vote, Amazing. in which 60% of the vote went to parties that identified as Remain or ambivalent, give people back a choice depending on where you think the Labour Party is, would that seem? Would that take the temperature of politics down? Do we think that would seem legitimate?
4: Uh, um, Tim, I, I mean, I think you know one important part of democracy is what. You know, we refer to as losers' consent in a sense that you know we are, I think, still at the stage where most people will recognize the legitimacy of the result of a general election. and although we would complain, perhaps some of us who don't particularly like the electoral system that we wish it weren't like that, I'm not sure there are that many people in in British society at the moment who would feel that you know Boris Johnson, had no right, had he got a you know, reasonable parliamentary majority to pass legislation, even though, as you say, you could argue that 60% of the country actually didn't, didn't vote for it, because you know, governments operating under that same electoral system for a very long time in the United Kingdom have done exactly that. I'm not sure many people would actually argue against it. We might not like it, some of us, but you know, I think most people regard it as legitimate. That's my guess, anyway. I don't know what others would think.
2: Maria. Yes, I agree. And I think actually um, having it done, as uh, to use the phrase, um, would actually be beneficial perhaps for our democracy because then we would end up arguing about whether it was good for us or bad for us and what to do with the state of the economy as it will be then rather than constantly rehashing the same old, same old argument that Mm. we have zero control over, frankly, and it's been leading us nowhere for for three years. Mm. So maybe if it passes, and especially if it passes at the beginning of a legislative process, uh, term, I think that actually could be a positive because then there will be quite a long time for the conservative government to, uh, you know, make sure that it doesn't have uh, disastrous economic consequences, mm. for example. And then we go to the next election, and then it's a proper democratic accountability. We either throw them out mm. because we didn't like it, or we, uh, you know, reward them for doing it beautifully. Mm and we vote for them again and this is a classic uh, rep- uh, kind of idea of democracy a representative democracy whereas now we are in limbo basically yeah and i think i
3: think yeah. also it's never going to be done is it i mean the idea that brexit <laughs> will suddenly be done by january 31st and we can all go on and move on to something else and go let's have a let's have a new game then shall are we are you pointing uh,
5: this
2: out to your thinking what oh you yeah say? yeah i've
3: been saying this for years i mean there are two things that i always <laughs> say to people right one Nobody ever asks what the future of the European Union would be if we stayed in it. Right. Nobody ever asks that. They always ask what's the future of of Brexit, you know, when we we leave it. But nobody actually says, well, where's Europe going to be in five years time? Where's the EU going to be? What's the eurozone going to be doing? How bad is the euro going to be performing on the currency market? Um, But also, I think everybody should know and i think they do know that when we do if, if we do leave uh, on january 31st that then begins another period of negotiation another at least five years to me anyway certainly another election period of um of doing deals individually and together with different countries doing deals doing trade deals with with china doing trade deals with america you know there'll be plenty for people who didn't win to argue about is what i'm saying so they could move on to a new argument and see if they could win that one
1: and that is why i think it will take the temperature out um, you know, in terms of the outcome, uh, in the outcome of this, because it's, it's just got, it's got, it's got very stuck. It won't be over, but a phase will be over. You'll be at the end of the mm-hmm. beginning, and a couple of important things happen. I think this is a less angry election because No Deal isn't, it's not a No Deal election yeah, that versus sense. remaining, and that, there was a lot of, you know, real yeah. fear about that, and it, you know, they might be right or they might not be. So this is a deal or not, and when it's a deal, um, well, you've got a lot of talking to do, but you've now done the thing. In 2016 yeah. so we've done the thing and then the remain campaign they will have to mourn and you know have a march and put their flags on but they can become the return campaign and the return campaign people might want to do it or not do it they might do it in two years at the end of that source. they might do it in 41 years if they've got the same stamina the other side had, but the return campaign if they win general elections to have a referendum to return that's a new form of democracy so we finally reconciled um, where we are with representative and democracy. And if we, if we don't do that, if we get a hung point, we get another referendum, Well, that will increase the heat. But people should be able to see they voted for it. Because if you wanted Boris Johnson his deal, there he was. You could have yeah. voted for Theresa May, you could have voted for Boris Johnson. If, if, the par- if you give us a hung parliament and they end up saying, we'll have another referendum, it would be much clearer than it was if they'd all voted for it off the 2017 mm. election, that, that, you know, that was in the manifestos this time. So I think, I think we're stumbling towards, you know, parliament representative democracy voted for a referendum. Mm. It's therefore got to either deliver it or, or deliver, you know, that, something that... in that, that, that situation, urs- Dominic
3: Cummings would then rename uh, the... Leave campaign, the Remain campaign, uh, just to confuse everyone.
0: (laughs) On a fake website. Um, But if we do that, if we have a referendum, just in terms of the sort of, um, you know, what was I voting for, I voted to leave, really leave, you now have a, uh, particularly with Nigel Farage's move, you have a sort of Brexit that you could say a Brexit that Brexiteers will embrace, which they clearly wouldn't do with Theresa May's deal, the ERG and Brexit Party, not happy. But that's not the referendum that's on offer from Labour and potentially the Remain Alliance. It's a referendum of Remain versus their interpretation of what an OK, sensible Brexit looks like, which... Even when you explain it, it sounds ridiculous. Brexit in name only. Yeah,
3: but the way you're explaining it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Because you're actually asking people to give you their vote on a complete and utter sort of shibboleth that they've just made up as they went along. I mean, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm.
1: But it happens if people vote for a hung parliament. That hung parliament will have to decide what to put on this ballot paper. But clearly, people had the option. If people didn't want to do that and they wanted to get Brexit done, they will, they will vote for a government that gets Brexit done. So we're finally getting to the point, I think, of at least making the first decision. And we'll see across the decade how So I think it's very interesting whether
0: people are as optimistic as you are about loser's consent, because I think loser's consent hasn't been very big in the last yeah. three
2: Mm-mm. years, yeah. True. arguably.
0: Or whatever. Now, we have a very interesting point down here about actually, oh, yeah. you know, mm. is it just that actually the sort of everyday experience of you know, black kids in the 1970s actually just become a bit more generalised mm. and a bit spread and a bit more mainstream? Mm. So that the rest of us Well, I mean,
4: I, I mean, without... I mean, real yeah. will talk about the, the kind of ethnic mm. side of it, maybe. But, I mean, I, I think you've made a really good point there in the sense that, you know, the Labour Party clearly has gone quite a long way to the left and therefore included a lot of people who previously would have been outside the labor Mm. party and had um you know views about all sorts of Mm. things including you know jewish people that would have Mm. been seen as kind of illegitimate and 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 not been talked about but now because they're in a mainstream Mm. party um they're beginning to Mm. kind of impact on our politics and likewise on the other side um you know you have had first with ukip and then with the Brexit Party and with the move from those two parties into the Conservative Party. A Conservative Party which you know, does contain people who, who have views which you know, perhaps for some people would have been regarded as kind of quite extreme or, or illegitimate. So I, I think you make a really, really good point there in some ways. The kind of extremes are no longer outside the mainstream in a way. They're, mm. they're part of the mainstream, mm. albeit on the kind of fringes of the, of the mainstream parties.
0: So, would it be better to actually have those views represented? Maria, you made the case for electoral reform. Would it be better if, you know, we talked about safety valves, if those views, I mean, UKIP got a lot of votes at some stages, but got no MPs beyond sort of Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless, very briefly. Uh, would it be better actually if we had those voices inside?
2: Parliament I don't, obviously or not. don't think it would have made a difference because uh, the incentive uh, on the part of the Conservative Party mm. to move to the right to capture mm. the UK voters mm. has already been created. Uh, so whether they are then in Parliament mm. or not, I don't think that actually matters. Mm. But um, coming back to this idea that uh, things are mainstreaming, mm. I think what we have to remember is what mainstreaming means. And I think what it means is that we hear those voices in places where maybe perhaps we wouldn't in Parliament, because in the past, as as Tim described, the Smedic election in the 60s, it was uh, a society, British society is much more racist, generally speaking, much less diverse and much more open racism in the streets. However, the politicians were absolutely keeping themselves mm-hmm. to the norm of anti-racism and they felt very strongly about it. For a lot of them, it was a kind of post-Second mm-hmm. World War uh, you know moral conviction. Um, and so they immediately announced um, you know, that the, the man who played this race card politics was a parliamentary pariah. And I think that is what has changed to some extent. That that voice that was so stomped so hard in the past is now allowed through because the parties are appealing to these kind of people um, that like that kind of politics. But the truth is that there are fewer of those people that like this kind of politics than before.
1: I think you could see the politics of race the other way around. I mean the questioner makes a very powerful point about the lived experience of race which I think is right through the 60s, 70s Mm -hmm. and 80s. Something that struck me when um, David Lammy was questioning Amber Rudd Mm -hmm. over Windrush and she had to Mm -hmm. resign over it and it was the 50th anniversary of rivers of blood I mean, it was only the juxtaposition of those two events which future was researching on it that enoch powell makes the rivers of blood speech there were a million and a quarter commonwealth migrants in this country my dad arrived uh, the, the next week i think so he didn't get the memo out uh, in india but um, um not only are there no black and asian mps there are no black or Asian journalists. There are no black or Asian people in any positions of power. You've got some chance that you'll be vox popped on the street of Smethwick, mm. like for a second. And so you've got an enormous political debate about them. Should they go back? Should they stay? Should they have any kids here? And what would that do? And there's no voice. At all. So the mainstream has broadened in different ways. It's broadened to the left, it's broadened to the right. But, you know, it's not till 1987 you've got any ethnic minority votes. with right. Even 10 years ago, 1 in 40 MPs, 15 MPs, 2.5% of the population. So to have seen that real change in the last 10 years, so, so, it's, so it's more factious. It's more fractious because voices that just weren't there at all. There's never an Asian woman in our parliament mm-hmm. till 2010. Mm-hmm. And you forget that. You forget that because pretty tells the home secretary. You know, Dan Abbott's on the other side. So, so I think I think it's more fractious because people who didn't have a voice at all in mainstream politics are holding the government yep. to account.
2: And I guess uh, there is. Um a kind of relationship between these two positions because as our parliament has become more diverse and a lot of parties have become much more openly pro-diversity mm-hmm. the people who were uh, still holding on to those racist views where did they have to go so they have abandoned the mainstream parties and as a result there was this opening for a political entrepreneur on the right and this mm-hmm. explains why um, uh, you keep kind of was so successful uh in fact not successful enough to win any parliamentary seats but very successful in local government and definitely moving that conservative party to the right as a result. But I think
3: a lot of UKIP's yeah. anti-immigration policies were also just about immigration. They weren't necessarily about ethnic yeah, yeah. minority mm. immigration, they were yeah. about Eastern European immigration. Yeah. You know, they were putting up, up a wall effectively, mm. if you pardon yeah. the phrase. But I think Britain should be quite proud of the fact that it is a very diverse country and it's a very racially tolerant country. And you know, I've lived in America and, you know, you go to America, there are ghettos, there are places where white people don't live. There are places where black people don't live. There are places where Hispanic people don't live, you know. And whereas here, you walk around the streets, we're full of... um the joys of spring. I'm particularly encouraged at the moment by a lot of Lebanese restaurants opening up, which are particularly good. Um, And every year there's a new kind of level and a new layer of of some kind of cosmopolitan thing going on. And I think we can sometimes forget, and I appreciate what you're saying about the 70s. I grew up in the 70s as well. I didn't go into subways either, because I was frightened of the skinhead gangs, but I'm not trying to diminish what you're saying. But you know, we aren't so much more now than we were then. I mean, I think it must have been a horror story for a lot of people. When I was at school, I went to school in Shepherd Bush, there was one black kid in my class you know that was it and I now live in East London um, where I'm uh, surrounded by all manner of different cultures and different kids and different people going to school together and and they're all getting along and, and you know racists are an absolute abomination I don't think anyone can now say that, that racism is a, is a massive problem in this country. I hope I'm right now when I say that, but I, you know, I do not, if I ever do come across anybody, and I haven't in a very long time saying anything racist, you know, they get it straight in the neck from me. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not there anymore when it was there when I was growing up as, as you were.
1: And Mike, Mike makes a very important point, and there's still a lot of racism on Twitter from the very yeah. fringes. I get more of it, like you know, yeah. than you would yeah. normally, but not in society. The same but these same. are morons, but they, No, that's, thing, right. Right. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. They, but they can, but you know, they can ruin your day if yeah. you're getting it all the time. But but what the very important point I want to make that I want to agree with. So you know, we haven't got UKIP now. We've got the Brexit Party because yeah. Nigel Farage had to abandon UKIP yeah. because it was tied yeah. up with Tommy Robinson, yeah. and Tommy Robinson was out. They all silently agree yeah. with me in the northwest, and he gets two percent of the votes. There's great shame to the internet which is all secretly agree mm. with him and the Brexit when you go to the European Parliament the Brexit party as your populist parties go it's a pretty politically correct populist party because it's always oh, yeah. going on about how it's got black and Asian MPs as well so so there you've got the populist party that wants to say the things you're not allowed mm. to say saying but of course we don't want to say the things mm. we're really not allowed to say so that is that is adopting as well the norm even though they're appealing to the voters that are you know that are most mm. uh, anxious. Uh, It is one
0: of the the interesting phenomena that when the UK leaves the EU, the European Parliament becomes a lot less diverse. And we actually rang up, because we were writing about the new commission, Mm -hmm. and I put in the line about no ethnic minority commissioner, and we wanted to check it, so we rang up the European Commission. Mm -hmm. And they said, we just don't know. You Just Just don't look at the pictures. And the President said it's a
1: commission as diverse as Europe is, or it's all white, so that's not quite right. But that's very interesting.
0: We're running... Up against time so i don't want to stop you from going to drinks because we've detained you for quite a long time but we put this up as britain's angriest election uh i think actually we've heard quite a lot of things which just well not yet and maybe not at all hopefully but i'm going to ask our panel to end just okay if it's not the angriest election what adjective are you going to give this what will this election be known as
4: um, let's start with Tim um, I mean given some of the uh, you know economies with the truth uh, on both sides might be known as Britain's dodgiest election perhaps and so we've
0: got Britain's dodgiest election from Tim Maria
2: well, actually, on the day in Parliament where the election was being decided, I was sitting in the House of Lords talking to electoral registration and electoral administrators. And they oh, were basically know. giving us, indeed, and they were basically giving us horror stories about what might go wrong on a Christmas, basically, election, including poster votes uh, lost in the Christmas strike and roads in Cumbria being snowed under and the uh, count delayed by two days. So, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, weather election. Britain's
3: bad yeah. weather election. Mike? Well, I've actually already named, uh, been naming it the Have I Got News For You election, because, uh, in <laughs> <laughs> fact, um, I can't claim the credit for that. Somebody actually named it <laughs> while I was interviewing them. Um, and it's become... The a kind of, of a, lard election. Well, a joke election, really. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. you could have a joke election, you could have a tub of lard winning it. I mean, I was uh, reminded of David <laughs> Letterman's quote <laughs> the other day when Mike Bloomberg was running for <laughs> mayor of New York, and he said, isn't it such a great pity that only one of these people can lose? And I mean, that's kind of where we are, really, isn't it?
0: <laughs> and sunda i think masterly it's summing up
1: i think it's the unpredictable election because it looks pretty predictable but so did the last one and that didn't turn out how we all expected it's so it's the it's the second brexit election and it might be the last one or there might be three or four more and do come, you still think it's, it's <laughs> going
0: to be the angriest election or no
1: I, th- I think i think what's coming through is that the politicians have understood that the public would like the temperature down and so hopefully mm. we'll see we'll see an attempt to keep the good behavior going but you know watch out for the last 10 days because i think i think there might be a, at least a rise of the temperature simmering and hopefully not um, overflowing Trump will be here as well, won't he? maybe
0: maria's yeah. snow will uh will cool stop that everything down cool yes. everything down <laughs> thank you all very much very sorry to anyone whose questions we didn't get to but thank you all very very much for coming thank you very much for engaging so much and please thank our panel
2: thank you